to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. the New Life Lutheran Podcast. This is Pastor Ben, and I have been gone for a few weeks. I had some minor surgery, so I was recovering, and I did some traveling with my family. And so you probably had some special guests that you listened to instead, and and maybe that was a little bit confusing because we stopped in the middle of a big conversation about something that we call here at New Life The Table, which is a biblical strategy lived out in the lives of the disciples with Jesus and the early church. And so we call our table experience here at New Life Life Groups. And each one of our life groups is a little bit different, and we allow them to form kind of organically, however it works for them. But we do have some expectations for each life group for them to truly live out their purpose and to function well. And that's what we're going to uh, continue talking about today. And we have been talking about it through our acronym, which is these guidelines. And just to give you a refresher, if you're stepping in for the first time, you can go back and catch up. Uh, But if you have been faithfully listening, this is what we've talked about already. We started with the L of the LIFE acronym, which means life sharing. We talked about intentional caring, and then Pastor Phil and Pastor Eric discussed faithful living. So today we're going to close up our conversation, and we're going to cover the E of our acronym, and it is Encouraged Calling. But before we begin this conversation today, I think it's really important to define our terms so we're all on the same page. And the term that we really need to define is the term calling, and once we have that in place, the encouraged element will, will make a lot of sense. So, uh, Pastor Eric, what is a calling for an individual? Yeah, so when we talk about, uh, when we talk about encouraged calling, um, when, when people hear calling, lots of times they think about what, what is the specific thing that I'm supposed to do uh, in order to be obedient to God. So oftentimes, um, I'm sure you've, Heard this since um, you have some youth ministry in your background. Uh, I have a little bit of, of youth ministry work in my background. So there was a lot of conversation of like, where is God calling me to go to college? We hear that a lot in high school um, with with kids, uh, with students who are faithful. Um, or we'll hear things like, uh, what kind of job is God calling me to do? Or we'll say, somebody will change jobs and they'll say, I felt like God was calling me to do this. That's oftentimes how we hear about calling. And and surely we do believe that God um, works in that particular way. But when we talk about calling here at New Life, um, because we're in the Lutheran tradition, uh, we, we draw from that kind of Reformation uh, language. And the language uh, theologically that we would use is vocation, which someone may have heard of that term uh, as well. And so a vocation is just a theological term for calling, but in the Reformation in the Lutheran tradition, uh, it means um, something very particular about uh, what God calls us to do. So calling for us, and and I think what we see in Scripture, um, how we should be talking about calling, is not necessarily our only um, 
God giving you specific instruction to do something, um, go to a certain college, go to a certain work, do, you know, marry a certain person, that sort of thing. Uh, but vocation, um, the calling that we have on our lives is um, to do whatever it is God has given us to do um, to his glory. So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about uh, the, the two different areas of the Christian life. We've been talking about the vertical Christian life, uh, the vertical area of the Christian life, which is my relationship with God or uh, the congregation's relationship with God. And then we also have a horizontal area of life, which is my relationship with other people, my relationship with the world, my relationship with creation, uh, my relationship with my coworkers, my wife, those sorts of things. So when we talk about calling, um, your vocation is to love and serve um, those people that are around you in whatever area, whatever whatever stage of life or whatever work you find yourself doing. So if you are a um, if you're if you're a warehouse worker, uh, simply the fact that you are working in a warehouse. Uh, that is your calling. You are doing exactly what God has for you to do right now. There's not some uh, greater calling that God has for you um, that like being a warehouse worker is somehow less than being a pastor, right? There's not like levels of calling. Um, but God gives us our vocation. He gives us our calling for the benefit of the world. So this is not um, uh, a salvation issue, right? You're not going to... Um, uh, you're not going to lose your salvation or you're not being unfaithful or disobedient to God uh, just because you do, you don't do um, uh, spiritual quote unquote spiritual work. Um, so there's not that kind of conversation. Your calling is whatever, whatever you find yourself doing. That is your calling. It's to love your neighbor, to love creation, to love the world um, in whatever area you find yourself in. So if you're a teacher, then being a teacher is your calling. If you're uh, a husband, then being a husband is your calling. Um, if you're, if you are a son or a daughter, then being a son or daughter is your calling. Um, if you're a warehouse worker, that's your calling. If you, um, work the drive through at McDonald's, that's your calling. And you can do that work for the glory of God in a way that loves and supports your neighbors, your coworkers, um, the people that you interact with. And that, that's what we talk about when we say calling is that you have, um, you, there are particular things in your life that God has brought you to. Your family, your work, your spouse, your children, your coworkers. And your calling is to love and support and care and work for the good of those neighbors that you have, um, your spouse, your family, uh, your... Um, Coworkers, your calling is to love and support and care for them in a way um, that honors God. So when we talk about calling, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about finding a specific job that we feel like God is calling us to do. It's it's in, it's encouraging and uplifting and supporting one another in those areas that we've already found ourselves in. Well, as we think about it that way and seeing that everyone will have unique callings, sometimes dependent on their age or time of frame or where they're living, all these different areas where God has called us to to influence the world. How do we take that into the grander approach, the grand narrative of the Great Commission, God's purpose for us, God's calling for us as believers in general to the world? How do we bring those two things together? Uh, well, I think of, and, and I, this is maybe a little bit apocryphal, so maybe it's not um, true, but 
there's a, a quote that floats around um, that Martin Luther was asked by a shoemaker. Um, he says, now that I believe in the gospel, um, how do I, uh, how do I do my work to the glory of God? And Martin Luther essentially said, uh, a, a good Christian shoemaker is not the one who makes shoes and puts crosses on them, but is the one who makes the best shoe for his neighbor. Um, so in our conception, and I think it's the biblical conception of the Christian life, we are saved by God's grace alone. And we, uh, we receive that grace simply by trusting in him and receiving that grace. Um, so we do nothing to save ourselves. It is all God's work. Um, and we worship and glorify God for that. But now after we are saved, we are set free um, from the guilt of not doing enough. We're set free from the guilt of not uh, working hard enough. And instead, we are then free to love our neighbor with reckless abandon. We are free to love our neighbor boldly. Uh, and so the way that God builds his kingdom um, is through these communities, uh, churches, congregations of new humans who have been made new through baptism and who are in Christ, uh, living their vocations well, caring for one another well, serving one another well, uplifting one another through hard times, and then loving the, the outside world well through whatever vocation they have. Um, so it's, it's just an integral part. So this is the way, the way that we interact with the world around us is through our vocations, um, primarily through our vocations. Um, so the great commission, uh, I think is, is fulfilled when we, uh, disciple one another, we care for one another, we love one another, and we, we push and challenge each other to do whatever our work is with excellence, um, and to do it in such a way that our neighbors, um, and maybe especially our non-Christian neighbors are loved and cared for in a way. So I like that, even if it is apocryphal, that uh, quote that's attributed to Martin Luther, um, I like it because I think it captures what um, Scripture has to say about the Christian life, is that the Christian um, worker, the Christian shoemaker, is not the one who makes a shoe and puts a cross on it, but is the one who makes the best shoe for his neighbor. Um, so... Christians should be the ones who are working the hardest. Um, we should be the ones who are uh, partying the hardest and caring for one another the hardest. We should be the ones who um, outdo our non-Christian neighbors um, in honor and in integrity and honesty and in quality of our work. Um, and by that, people are going to see that and recognize that. And that opens up an opportunity uh, to have those conversations. So I think it's just the vocation calling is the way that the Christian lives their Christian life, um, in, in the world outside of, um, the, the vertical in the horizontal world where you deal with other people and deal with the world vocation and calling is the way that we build God's kingdom. So we talked about the Christian shoe worker and it kind of had this implication that, uh, God has made us specific ways to find success in certain areas. Mm -hmm. And so like if I went out to be the Christian shoemaker, I would probably not, uh, one, I would go broke, uh, two, I wouldn't really honor God because I couldn't do it with excellence. And so there's this kind of this idea of, of doing things well and doing things with excellence. Yeah. And in order to really do things with excellence, it's important to understand who you are and how God has made you. Mm. So part of our journey classes, pastor Eric actually uses a tool 
called the SHAPE assessment, which is a, another acronym. And it really allows people to take a deep dive into themselves and really understand how God has made them. And so this is the breakdown of the acronym. And we're going to walk through each piece this today. And I think it's going to be really good. It might actually uh, bleed over into a couple days. Mm-hmm. It's a big conversation. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't taken this step yet, if you haven't gone through the journey classes here, I would strongly encourage you to take yeah. the shape assessment. Yeah. Uh, if you're listening online yeah. and you're not a part of new life, but you listen, you're like, I, I need to do that. I need to understand myself better, how God created me. Uh, please email Pastor Eric and get yeah. connected. We'd love to send you that, help you with that, help you understand yourself, because I think it really is the key to finding your calling and really living in the space where God has called you to uniquely live. And so here's the the five components of it. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts, which is the S. The H is heart, or another way to understand that is passions. Abilities is the A. Personality is the P. And we end with E, which is experience. So uh, let's kick this off with the first piece of the puzzle, which is spiritual gifts. So mm-hmm. just r- really simply, this is probably the the yeah. most confusing yeah. of the five. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are spiritual gifts? Yeah. So um, as we see in scripture uh, throughout both the Old and the New Testament, there are times where um, God's personal presence, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, um, enters in to people and empowers them for a particular task. Um, we see it in the Old Testament, um, not as widespread as in the New, because um, the Holy Spirit hadn't filled and descended on God's people the way that it does um, in Acts chapter 2 in the church and the way that it does today in the church. Um, but there are times in the Old Testament where we hear about individuals who are filled with God's Spirit, and it, the Spirit gives them the the power and enables them to do something that they wouldn't be able to do otherwise, um, or guides them in a particular way that they weren't, uh, wouldn't be able to think through or get, get there themselves. In the New Testament, after Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples, um, there becomes a more robust understanding of how the Holy Spirit operates in human individuals. So when, uh, the disciple, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, the first thing that happens is they are empowered to speak languages that they don't know. Um, and they are also uh, empowered to proclaim the gospel. Um, and surely they had, uh, I'm sure that Peter had some oratory skill. I'm sure that he was able to do some of that, but he had been given um, a, a particular message to proclaim to uh, the Jews that were that were there listening. So then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, or New Testament, I mean, um, we, we get glimpses into this. So uh, one of the challenges of the New Testament is that, um, the bulk of it, the, the letters are not written. They're not designed to be like universal letters. They're designed, they're, they're addressing particular issues. So it's not, we don't get a whole list of spiritual gifts. We also don't get uh, a very clear outline of what spiritual gifts are. So the best that we can do is we can read and uh, pray over uh, the passages that we do see, and then try to extrapolate the best wisdom that we can from them. So, um, there are kind of four main um, places that the spiritual gifts um, are enumerated. Uh, it's Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians 4, and uh, yeah, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, um, and then maybe a handful of smaller places. But those three are the big ones um, where where we get a list of, of spiritual gifts. And so I think that like 
One one of those, I think 1 Corinthians 12 maybe has like um, six or seven on that list. Same with Romans 12. Ephesians 4 has like four or five on that list. Um, or maybe there's 13 in that 1 Corinthians 12 passage. Anyway, so there's we, we get we get a list, several lists of them. Um, and there are some overlap between them, uh, what those spiritual gifts are. Um, there are everything from administration or leadership um, all the way to what Paul calls prophecy. Um, they talk about tongues, um, which is an interesting um, experience that uh, in my reading of of those passages about the, the gift of tongues. Um, those are human languages that the person doesn't know. Um, there is a lot of debate around that particular one. Um, but in my, in my best reading, the way that I read them, it's human, human languages that you don't know, and you're given the gift of other languages, um, in order to spread the gospel. Um, also from like leadership, uh, and administration to, uh, things that are a little bit more exciting, like prophecy and speaking in tongues, uh, to some things that seem very benign, like serving. Uh, serving is a spiritual gift. Mercy is a spiritual gift. Uh, giving is a spiritual gift. Um, so it kind of there's like a whole gamut of things um, that the spiritual gifts can be. And my best definition for spiritual gifts, it is, it is the Holy Spirit empowering you um, to do a particular work for the church. Um, and, and sometimes it's for the outside world. Overwhelmingly, um, spiritual gifts are for your brothers or sisters in the church. And we see that um, in Ephesians 1, or 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 specifically. Um, in Ephesians 4, he outlines leadership gifts, uh, Paul does. And he says these are for the building up of the body. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 12, um, Paul's talking about the spiritual gifts in the context of loving and serving and worshiping with um, your brothers and sisters in Christ. So uh, there's lots of spiritual gifts, um, but the best way, my best definition is that it is the Holy Spirit filling the person and giving them um, uh, unique uh, ability to serve and lift up their brothers or sisters and sometimes uh, lift those outside the church up as well. As we have these conversations, uh, like Pastor Eric alluded to, there's debate on a lot of these things. Denominations, they don't divide over these things, but they have disagreements over these things. Um, and one of those things is, is this idea that spiritual gifts, uh, a lot of times it's focused on one specific spiritual gift, hmm. are required for salvation. Uh, so where do Lutherans stand on this topic and, and why do we end up there? Yeah, so the what you're alluding to is, um, and, and maybe our here, maybe the listeners don't know uh, this, uh, maybe they do, at least they've probably heard of it, um, but it's primarily around the gift of tongues is where this kind of conversation happens. And there are some uh, movements of the church, uh, primarily the movements that started in the early 20th century, um, what's called the first wave charismatic movement, um, where in, in their reading of the New Testament, they came to the conclusion uh, that in order, that, that every time somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, they speak in tongues. Um, I just kind of frankly think that's kind of a silly read. <laughs> I don't know, like, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. So this is a conversation that you, you and I have had this conversation lots of times. And I, the, if, if, the listeners have listened to all of the all of our episodes, all of our conversations. They will have heard this as well. But there's a difference when we, especially when we read the New Testament, because it's so tempting um, 
to to take the New Testament in a particular way, there are kind of two main um, uh, things that are going on when Paul writes a letter. Sometimes are are when we read the the uh, Gospels or anything like that. Some of the passages are dis- descriptive; they're telling what happened. Um, so in Acts, that would be Acts chapter two when the uh, believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. That's a description about what's going on. Um, what's dangerous is when individuals or groups read those descriptive passages and make them prescriptive, where they say, oh, well, since this is what happened to this particular group of people, then that must be the way that it should be for every, every all time, um, for every person. And so they place that Acts chapter 2 event, um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, and they say, well, the rest of the New Testament, whenever somebody's filled with the Holy Spirit, we're just not told that they spoke in tongues because it's there in the in Acts chapter 2. Um, and so they take that descriptive event and make it prescriptive for everybody. So in order for you to be a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and the mark of that is you speak in tongues, um, which is just not, uh, I mean, we just don't see that in the rest of the New Testament. I'm not really sure how that how people get to that reading of it. Um, and, and in fact, Paul in the Corinthians letters, he says, he says, speaking in tongues is great, but there are better, there are better gifts. You know, the gift of prophecy um, is a better gift um, than speaking in tongues. So even in Paul's mind, um, tongues was not preeminent in any, for any, in any way. Um, so I don't really know. Um, I don't understand that, but we, we would not, the Lutheran tradition would not do that. Martin Luther, um, said, and and we would agree with him, uh, that if God wills and if it would be beneficial to the gospel to, um, uh, to use gifts, miraculous healing tongues to, if, if God sees it as beneficial to spread the gospel, he'll do it. Um, and we're, we're open to that too. So we would not close the door on any spiritual gift, um, uh, and, but we would, uh, but we would say we would not require any particular spiritual gift. Um, that's just not, not what scripture tells us. Yeah. As we read through scripture, what we, what we do see is that the Holy Spirit, if, if we have a relationship with God, we are indwelt with mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit and that actually is our seal of redemption. But as mm-hmm. far as how he, uh, works out his power in our lives at, really is not a a salvific issue. I actually, uh, when I was in college, I went on one date with uh, a girl Mm -hmm. and she brought this topic up. Weird first date conversation. (laughs) And we started having this conversation about, she said, have you spoken in tongues before? And I said, no, I don't have that gift. And she said, well, then you're not a Christian. Oh, yikes. And so I paid the bill and we went home and we just moved on. But unfortunately, there are there are groups of people that have bought into this false right. notion. It's not biblical. Uh, you don't see it anywhere in the Old Testament. I mean, if it's eternal truth, it's eternal truth. We'd right. see it pop up. We do right. see the Holy Spirit working all the way from creation, all through the narrative. And so we know he's there. We know he's indwelling believers. Mm-hmm. And so that's an eternal truth. But as far as how he lives out his work in our lives, uh, that varies. And I think it does yeah. damage to... And some of these groups of uh, of Christian Christian belief systems that it forces people to actually create a, a false yeah. reality, and so yeah. there's like classes they take to learn how to mm-hmm. speak in tongues, mm-hmm. and you're like, do I really need to learn something that is really put upon me by the Holy Spirit? 
uh, I guess you could hone it, but learning it is a totally right. different thing. And so you'll have just groups where kids really in the end, when they come out of some of those movements, they'll say, I was faking the entire time to fit in. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's just a bad thing to put on people. Yeah, and I, and I would say more generally, you know, when we have these kinds of conversations, and this is just a side note um, for our listeners, but um, and, and for our congregation, we when the Lutheran tradition, which is one of the reasons why I love it, is that we're very intentional that where Scripture stops, we stop. We don't go where Scripture doesn't go. So that's how we talk about the sacraments. We say we are not going to try to explain metaphysically or physiologically how the bread and the wine is the body and blood of Jesus. But Jesus said it is. Paul said it is. So it is. And so we, we stop short of adding things to the scripture in order to make them make sense to us. Um, and that's what we do. That's what we have to do with the spiritual gifts, too. And I think the most appropriate thing to do is to just stop where the scripture stops, where scripture does not say that any one gift is required um, or that that the spirit only moves in one particular way. Um, that scripture just doesn't say that. And so we just don't extrapolate that from the scriptures. Um, there are some, some, you know, obviously we can gain wisdom about how the spirit works, um, about how we can expect the spirit to work, but we're, we don't hamstring the spirit and say, this is exactly how he's going to operate in the life of the the believer. So we stop where scripture stops. And so we have to stop um, when we have this conversation about spiritual gifts. Yeah. One thing you kind of alluded to is that um, as Lutherans, and I think really it's more of like LCMC Lutheran. So I think we need to be probably a little bit more specific about this. Oh. Just so any of the other Lutheran listeners out there kind of understand where we stand versus maybe where they stand or have stood or whatever. Um, we, we talk about this idea that God can do whatever he wants. The Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants, just as in the past and the present. Uh, I know you had said that that would be definitely the stance of our church at New Life mm -hmm. Lutheran, LCMC. I would say most, I would say almost 99.9%. .9%. I mean, everything's a little bit dictated by the pastor, right, things right. like that. So that's a, that's Cause we're, we're more of a congregational model. Yeah. So there's a lot of autonomy. And so I can't yeah. really blanket statements say that, but I would yeah. say for the most part, I would say almost 100% that'd be the case. But there are some right. Lutheran groups that would say the spirit doesn't really function right. in certain ways anymore. And so why don't you tell us a little bit oh. about that? Uh, I, I mean, well, that's just, uh, we, yeah, we would have some, um, what, we would, what we would probably consider um, sister denominations, um, even if they wouldn't consider us that. Uh, but Orthodox... Lutherans, um, maybe more conservative Lutherans, um, who would say that, uh, agree maybe with a more Calvinist, uh, reformed stance that says, uh, that the, the spirit stopped using those gifts in the apostolic age. Like when the apostles died, those gifts stopped. I don't know if that's the actual stance of like, um, any of our, uh, sister denominations, other Lutheran denominations, but, but it's that flavor of things. So the whole idea is, well, the Holy Spirit just doesn't move that way anymore, which I'm not sure, um, if those churches have work in like developing nations, but you know, in developing nations, we see a much more robust, um, experience of miracles than we do here in the States. Um, so I don't know if they have some flexibility in that, um, or if that's a pretty rigid, uh, but it essentially says that when it, the, the the idea is that when the the gifts of the spirit stopped moving in those sorts of miraculous ways, um, 
shortly after or either in the life of the apostles or shortly thereafter, um, which we do hear um, even some of the church fathers uh, just mention kind of in passing. Uh, I can't remember who it is, but one church father just says, you know, we don't see we don't see healing as much as as we did uh, with when the apostles were here. And he, you know, was maybe 100, 150 years after um, the apostles. So um, we do know that there was maybe the spirit was less active in that way um, and has been. um, But we still have, uh, I think, verifiable accounts of miraculous things happening. And there's no reason why we can't experience that today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Typically, it's all things miraculous. They kind of just write off. Right. So it'd be like speaking in tongues, healing, things like that. Yeah. And I think you're right. In in other countries, we see it more because we have to go back to the purpose of spiritual gifts, right. which are to build people up, build yeah. up the body of Christ and yeah. to help God do his work. Yeah. You know, we are camped out in the United States where there's a Bible every 15 feet. Yeah. You know, if we spread them out, it'd probably cover all the ground. You know, yeah. there's just that much uh, truth laying around in our homes, on our shelves. I mean, I have like 20 copies in my office. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gives you an idea of the society that we are living in. Yeah. So... When Jesus shows up and, and he's doing his work, they're like, show us a sign. He's like, if I show you a sign, it's not going to make a difference. You're right. not going to believe. Um, and then there's another section where he's like, you have you have the prophets and Moses, and you're not going to believe them. Yeah, right. You're not going to believe this. Yeah. And so I think just the United States, what we're kind of living in is that reality. Mm-hmm. Is like, it doesn't matter if I went outside and raised someone from the dead. Right. People just aren't going to respond it. to it because, right. you know, they'd write it off. Yeah, that's you right. You know, there'd be, oh, that guy was in a coma. You know, there's all these types of things. Yeah. I think that's the reality we're living in. So the Holy Spirit works in a different way, specifically in our culture. Yeah. Probably more developed worlds because people don't even interact with God that way. Right. Whereas in a third world country, you're looking at a totally different scenario. Uh, they're more in tune to that type of stuff. That actually could be a convincing proof. Right. Whereas I think here, a, a good conversation, yeah, a, a good look into God's truth some of those things are, are more effective. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's more of what we're seeing than the, the Holy Spirit just vacating abilities. Right. I mean, that's, a, I think just a bad, bad understanding. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, you know, I, if I, when I, when somebody tells me about something that's seemingly miraculous, even I'm a little skeptical, right. And like, I've committed my, my, my career to, um, walking with people in their um, interactions with a supernatural person, um, God. And so even me, even I'm a little skeptical at first, right? And I believe in miracles. I believe that that they're real. I believe that God works in the world that way. Um, but when someone tells me about a miraculous healing, even I'm a little skeptical at first, right? So it just makes sense that God... Um, wouldn't use those exactly for what you, you know, even in Jesus's time, he was like, look, even if I did this, you still wouldn't believe me. You know, it just, if it's not going to produce um, faith or it's not going to produce repentance or produce um, those sorts of uh, awakening and enlightenment, um, I don't think that God would um, just because we wish that he did. You know what I mean? So uh, there are lots of things that go into that, um, but I think that we've covered it pretty well. So it's time to move on to our, our next letter. We're going to talk about H, which stands for heart, or kind of the simpler way to understand it is just to think about the things that you are uniquely 
passionate about, right? Where, what makes your heart move and stir and things like that. And we all have, we all have different things that, that stirs our hearts. So, um, in, in line with that kind of concept, I want to ask you a question that, um, though it might seem like it, it could lead to fragmentation of the church. What is the beauty of being connected to a body of believers who have a unique heart, unique passions that they, they tend to lean into? Yeah. I mean, you know, and I've mentioned this several times, um, I don't know if I have on the podcast, um, but I think that the diversity of the church is is its beauty, is part of its beauty. And I think that Paul recognized that as well. So he even says, um, uh, there are many ministries, there are many gifts, there are many members of the church, and and we all come together and produce you know one body um, in Christ. So part of the beauty of the church is that we um, we all have different things that get us up in the morning, right? If it's um, you know, with some people, you know, in our context, since we're in a rural community, for some people, it's um, it's their horses, right? That like they are just really excited about horse, you know, horse riding, um, and and all that in that whole world. I I haven't been on a horse in probably fifteen years, and I'm happy. You know, I don't want to get on a horse, right? Like that doesn't that is doesn't excite me, um, and so. I just have different passions than someone like that might be. So then instead of saying, oh, well, um, as a church, we can only pursue one kind of work or one kind of ministry or one kind of, of giftedness, um, the diversity is what makes it makes us beautiful. And this goes back again um, to the calling. Everybody has a different vocation. Everyone has a different calling that God has, has equipped them for, that God has them in. Um, and, and these kind of passions, this, this, what, what gets you up in the morning and what gets you really excited, um, that's part of the beauty. And it actually, uh, is, gives us a better chance. We cast a wider net as we minister to people and draw people together. And part of the beauty of the church is that we can show up, um, for a worship service and there are people from all walks of life. Um, there are people who, uh, come in, uh, wearing nice, Pressed jeans with a tucked in button up shirt. They drive a Volvo, you know, park it in the parking lot, come inside. Um, we have some people that pull up in uh, super beat up Chevys and, you know, wear t-shirts and, and we all gather together. We receive the same word. Um, we receive the same body and blood of Jesus Christ. And then we are sent away to do the same work, um, which is build the kingdom. Uh, and so I think that that diversity is, is beautiful and actually gives us a better chance um, to fulfill the great commitment. One of the things that you'll see if you walk into our church, as you're entering the sanctuary to the right, there's a big wall of all sorts of different ministry teams. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting in my office one day and there was a person from a different church. They're visiting apparently for some reason. And they were sitting by our ministry team wall. And they're like, I would never go to a church with this many ministry teams. Mm. And I kind of just listened to this person go on and on and on and on. And I was you know, at that point where I was getting pretty worked up <laughs> and, uh, you know, you visualize things that, you know, you can't do is like one of those moments. <laughs> and so finally I just like got up from my desk, my door was wide open. So I don't know why this person thought this was a good idea to uh, rip on these things right by my office door. But I said, you know, we're very proud of the ministry teams that we have. They're all led by people in our church who have different passions. Mm -hmm. And, and so we love that we're, trying to do this much for our community and, and we hope to add more. Yeah. And then I sat down and once she left, I got out of there cause I was too worked up to stay in the church building and I got in my car and drove home. <laughs> uh, but the reality is that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. 
That means that that we have a lot of people with different passions. And when right. people have different passions, they go to Pastor Eric and Pastor Eric says, if you're passionate about this, would you like to consider starting a ministry team? Mm-hmm. And that's why we have so many because we have a diverse church yeah. with different passions. We want to elevate all of those passions that God has given them. And we want to be true to the heart that he has placed in them yeah. and let them do what they are, are called to do. Mm-hmm. Now, here's my second question. It kind of actually caters to that reality that I was living in there for a brief moment is how might uh, diverse passions actually create division within a church? Oh, yeah. You know, I think um, we, you can easily get into uh, uh, some power games and, you know, we have a larger church. Um, I mean, it's not a large church, but it's, it's not a small church. And, um, and so we're a little bit protected from that, but not entirely protected from that. But I, I saw that, I saw this, especially, um, in, in my first, uh, parish, uh, smaller parishes, you know, around a hundred, which is kind of the average size. So an average size church, um, if somebody is very excited about something and also happens to have, um, the purse strings, um, then they can kind of hijack everything that the church does. Um, or if they just happen to be a very uh, tenacious kind of person, even if they don't have money, um, they can dominate what the pastor hears. They can dominate. Um, if they're, if they're coming to the pastor every week talking about how we need to be doing this and that for this person or that group, um, then it can dominate, um, what, what the church does. So that, that can cause division. Um, now I, I should caveat that and say that there are, um, some churches that, that are laser focused that way. Um, and they've just adopted something, uh, a particular mission field for their church. And so that can be, it's not, it's not always negative, but you, the way that it can cause division is that certain people can hijack, um, the whole congregation, um, and make it about what they're excited about, which stems from a good thing, right? You're, you feel particularly passionate about something God's, um, brought up in you. Um, you've noticed a particular need, you get excited about it. Those are all good things. Um, but it can kind of hijack, uh, the whole church or a pastor's time. So then the pastor spends their time dealing with this one person instead of, uh, tending to the whole flock instead of tending to the whole church. Um, so there, there are a couple ways, but I would say that's probably the most, uh, prominent way is a person gets excited about something and they either hijack the whole, um, congregation and dangle money, you know, and they say, I'm going to give money. If you do, you know, if you do these things, I'll give to that. Um, and if not, then I'm not going to give to those things, to the other things that you want to do, or they can hijack a pastor's time, which doesn't allow the pastor to equip, empower, um, or care for, um, the rest of the, the congregation. Yeah, part of our humanity is just the reality that if we're passionate about something yeah. and someone else isn't, yes. oh yes, we tend to view that person very strangely. Yeah. And then also, mm-hmm. um, we also do the the inverse, right? So if someone's something's someone is passionate about something that we don't care about, we kind of think they're stupid, don't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You spent your money on what? You use your time for what? You restored an old car and end up spending $50,000 on a car that's now worth 12. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's stuff like that. And and we all have our, our unique things like that. And I think the the big key that removes that division is realizing that all these ministry teams and all these components and all these passions that God has laid on our heart, all are intended to lead to one specific goal. 
which is to connect people to the, right. to the family of Christ. And so if that's, um, sewing a quilt, it's sewing a quilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if that's going to a third world country and doing a mission trip, that's doing that. Yeah. And all these things are valid. And I think anytime that you begin to say that yours is better and theirs is less important, yeah. Uh, that's that's where the division kicks in because obviously that would create a division. Imagine someone coming and telling you that the ministry that you're passionate about is worthless. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to be very excited about that, <laughs> and yeah. so it, it it very easily can create divisions. And and really, that's kind of the state of the church, isn't it? And we have yeah. a lot of different denominations, uh, really because of different ideologies and understandings and and things like that, different passions. And so, uh, unfortunately, we're divided. Mm-hmm. in the temporary, but in the eternal, God will bring us all together mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll all get our chastising and then we'll be <laughs> one big happy family. Mm-hmm. And we, he, we will really see the beauty probably of what could have been yeah, and then what is in the eternal. When you think about, you know, just to, if I can wax a little bit, um, theologically, you know, you think when you, when you think about a forest, the best, healthiest forests are diverse. They have lots of different trees. They have lots of different undergrowth. They have lots of different animals. Um, they have a robust um, insect ecosystem. And so in in our world, in the the natural world, we can see that diversity is good, that it actually it, it produces a better, um, healthier environment for everybody. Um, so it's it doesn't makes sense why humans then would expect um, the, the church to be monolithic. Um, it's the same God who produced both those things. Um, and so human community, um, I think, is also better. Specifically, the congregation is better when it's diverse and has um, people from diverse backgrounds who are passionate about diverse things because um, we, we more, I think we better reflect God and we also better, um, we, we produce a healthier environment for everybody because we can keep each other in check and, uh, you know, one thing that I didn't mention that it doesn't really cause, maybe it could cause a division in a church, but we, you, you know, you hinted at it. We do tend to moralize, right? Uh, our passions. So if you're not as passionate about something about X, Y, and Z as I am, then you're wrong and I'm right. Um, and that can cause some arrogance, which, you know, that, that could cause division in a church. Um, I would say that probably is more likely to cause, uh, interpersonal issues, um, the division of the church, but that's another pitfall that we could see happen. All right. On a personal level, um, just going to have this conversation. How has God, Mm. uh, uniquely shaped you in this area? What is the thing that, uh, stirs your heart? Yeah. So there's, um, I would, if, if I had to say there, if there's one kind of focus that I'm particularly interested in, um, in, in my ministry, it's uh, getting getting the word of God into the lives of people who are in the margins of society, um, which has been my shtick since college, practically. Um, you know, it's, it's gotten a lot much more clarification and refinement since then. Um, but early on, I knew I wanted to uh, minister to and pastor, shepherd, lead, empower those who are outside the norm. Um, and just in, in my last discipleship moment, I guess a couple of weeks ago, um, 
it's the group I call I call them the Hicks homies and hombres, right? The people that the church just generally doesn't minister to. Um, and it and the refinement happened when I realized, oh, it's about helping those in the margins of the church understand scripture better and understand it in a way that interests them and captivates them and gets their uh, gets them interested in hearing scripture anew. So I would say that's my particular passion. Um, unfortunately, I just because of uh, some of the administration and, and some of the things you know in in the church, I don't always get to do that as as a pastor. Um, but I feel most fulfilled and I feel um, most pleased with my work when I get to do that sort of thing. Um, so that I would say that's probably my uh, my passion. And and the thing about passions is that um, again, you know, we're dealing with the horizontal world, so I think that it's we need to be careful that. Um, passions are not salvific. You know what I mean? So just because you don't have the opportunity to serve in your passion or just because you don't like devote your career to your passion doesn't mean that you're being disobedient. Um, this is just what God has given you um, to to spur you on and to to keep you keep you going. Um, so I think I needed to kind of I need to qu- clarify that that they're not salvific. Um, so you're not saved because of your passion. Um, and you're not saved because you, maybe you don't do your passion. Uh, you're not, you're not involved in what you're passionate about as much as you would like to be. That doesn't mean that you're being disobedient or that you're not saved. Um, it's just what God has given you to, to get you going, um, to get that spur in your saddle to, to do something for him. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of like a a B12 shot. Yeah. That's That's what I think of is. Your, your passion, that's what gets you up in the morning. Yep. You, you do the things you do. And even if you're doing a job and you're passionate about something, if you can kind of refine your job to make it work within that context, you're going to actually have more energy yeah, that's right. and more drive and more success. And yeah. so I, I, I love this about people. I love that we have a whole panoply of different passions here at New Life. And I hope that we never unintentionally um, – squash those things. Sure. Yeah. What are you, what are you passionate about? I'm passionate about podcasts, <laughs> hernia surgeries. Yeah. And, um, I think what I've, I think it's changed over time, but I've always had a, a pretty good passion towards outreach, but really it's kind of just coming to a, a general heart to actually see God impact people's lives. And mm whatever that is. I think there's just a real potential for health through God's word, mm. through God's church. And so for me, it, that's typically where it leads. Can I uh, do something to help make things healthy? A person's life, a person's marriage. Can I teach a sermon that's going to allow people to see that God really wants to do something with their lives? Mm. Can I have a meeting with my staff or with a leadership team that really helps them understand what we could be, what health looks like. And so that's what I'm passionate about is really helping people see where they can go and then helping them get there. Hmm. And, you know, for, for me, like I said, when I was younger, it played out as kind of this idea of outreach. Like I want somebody to understand that they can have a relationship with God and then I want to help them get there. Hmm. Um, now it's a larger scope. It's just in general. Like I want new life to see where they could go, what they could be, and then get them there. I want our leadership team to understand and staff the same, what they could be, and then get them there. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, there's just so much potential in the world. And like I said before, I, I think we're going to get to heaven and God's going to say, this is what you guys could have accomplished, but this is what you did instead because of your hard heartedness or your divisions or this or that. And I would prefer to show up and have him say there could have been a, it could have been a lot worse, <laughs> but you listened to the work of the Holy spirit in your heart, the nudge you had, you followed your passion. Everyone followed their passion mm-hmm. and, and really understood their full shape. And, uh, and uh, we see the the positive result. Mm. So we're never going to obviously get the full 100%. This is what it could have been like. But I, I don't, uh, I'd rather shoot for the moon mm. than uh, find out later we didn't do anything. Yeah, so. well, that's a big, you know, with that particular passion. Um, in, in the first letter, I've, I've quoted this several times now, probably on this podcast, but it's what I'm going through, what I'm thinking about, what I'm meditating on right now. Uh, but First Corinthians, uh, which is what I'm reading through right now in my own personal devotions, um, Paul sells, Paul tells this church in Corinth that they have this is like a, sin, a horrible, horribly sinful church. But he says, "You have everything in Christ. You have everything. You have Paul. You have Apollos. You have Jesus. You have everything in Christ." Um, which I told Pastor Phil in our last podcast, like that just sounds downright cosmic. You know what I mean? Like unlimited potential. And I think it goes back to this, this idea that we see in Genesis one and two, that God has placed us in a world that has so much abundance. Um, and, and the writers all through the Psalms, um, and Jesus himself, as he taught, um, indicate that God has this, like, he, he holds everything, um, for us. And he has everything for us. And so I think sometimes we tend to, in ministry, um, and, and oftentimes uh, I, I, I see this in, in congregations, is that people have like a scarcity mindset where they're like, well, I don't have the right training for this, or I don't have, um, I don't have what it takes to do this ministry. Um, and that's like a, that's a scarcity mindset. And um, sometimes I just want to like, grab them by the shoulders and shake them, you know, and say, you have everything, everything in Christ. Um, and that's, I think that, that your passion is great because it's like tapping into the abundance that God has for us. You know, why not go for it? Um, which is kind of what I said, mentioned back at, at the beginning when I talked about vocation is like, we are free. Like we're free from consequences. If we mess up, it doesn't change how God feels about us. It doesn't change our salvation. God saved us, so just go for it. You know, love your neighbor, do do everything that you can. We have everything. So in our vocations, um, in our passions, we just go for it, um, and let the let it fall where it may. 